1947, at the World Conference for Christian Youth in Oslo, Norway, the concluding word of the conference was this, quote, the criterion of inspiration was generally taken to be the testimony of any passage to or its accordance with the spirit of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means go study the Bible, find the parts which seem like they represent Jesus, and then throw out the words that don't seem like they fit with the spirit of Jesus. In other words, the Bible is not inerrant and the Bible is not sufficient in their estimation. This conclusion, of course, has been borne out since then in a number of critical ways, but the question is, how did we get here? Well, you have to go back a few hundred years to the age of enlightenment. About 300 years ago, the world was giving birth to naturalism, the idea that everything in the world is bound by laws and is therefore observable to the senses and understood by human reason. In Germany at this time, there was a fundamental shift in the way that the universe was viewed. Prior to this point, the great scientists of old, men like Galileo, Newton, Copernicus, and Bacon, understood that the universe had very definite rules and laws, but they also maintained that God could step into creation as he willed to reorder things. So here's an example. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. These laws of astronomy observed by Galileo and Copernicus were natural and were understood. But as I said, if God so chose, he could step in and transcend those laws for a time as he willed. And this was always understood. So in Joshua chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, it reads, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, the older scientists accepted this scripture, seeing no conflict between it and the general laws of science our world is built on. But as naturalism gave way, men proposed that God merely set the world into motion like a giant machine and then he stepped away from it all. The new idea was that the world was not open to reordering from God. It was a closed unit. Thoughts like these were circulating throughout Germany in these early years and soon enough, most of the major thinkers, especially in the scientific world, believed that the universe is not and never was open to God's sovereign hand. German theologians joined in this thinking and began to look at the universe as a totally closed unit, set in motion by a stoic God who stepped away from it all. Francis Schaeffer, commenting on this tragic turning point in theological history, said that these theologians conceded the point not out of necessity, but out of a pressure to conform. This is where biblical inerrancy and sufficiency was initially undermined. 18th century Germany. In short order, man began to move, remove from the Bible all of those parts of it which they deemed miraculous. And Karl Barth suggested that the Bible was morally true but factually false. And therein lies the heretical quip, the Bible is not the word of God, but it does contain the word of God. 
The question is, how are these conclusions continuing to shape the church today? How are they shaping culture? And how should Christians be thinking through these things? Welcome to Who Let the Dogma Out, where doctrine has dominion over all of life. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. My name is Daniel Mayfield, and I'm joined by the infamous Jacob Rutledge and Jack Wilkie. Infamous being so famous that you are <laughs> infamous. If you get the reference, you're awesome. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. And I, I think infamous is, is probably a, appropriate uh, rather than uh, famous. So yeah. uh, oh. I think that, that, that's a good word. To I describe that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I actually prefer that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I do not get to ascend. I said I'm joined by the two infamous. I'm not okay. even there. One no, day, yeah. I, I hope to. You are now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> by association, your your name by is on the list with ours. That's yeah. just how it works. So, your square is with our square in the Zoom call. So, <laughs> perfect. What are we doing today, Jack? Do you want to talk a little bit about maybe just introduce a little further? What is behind the idea of inerrancy and sufficiency? How this is relevant? and uh, kind of let the conversation go from there. Absolutely. We started last week on the idea of being dogmatic, and it's good to be dogmatic sometimes, and to have dogmas, and to, to hold beliefs as unshakable principles. And this is one that, as you said in the intro, you start picking at this, and a whole lot of things come unraveled, right? And and this has been picked at, as you said, for hundreds of years. Uh, it goes through new rounds all the time, and really, there's nothing new about it at all. You go back, I, literally, what was the very first temptation? Has God really said? Hmm. That's inerrancy, that's sufficiency. Did God give you everything you need to know? You know, this this tree looks really good. He didn't give you what you needed. Well, with the scripture, did he give us what we needed? Is it enough? Do we need to add on top of it? Is is it limited to the religious, and it doesn't really flow into the rest of life? And all of these questions, and as, as we've really tried to establish so far with our first episode, and we'll continue to do so, Every Christian has beliefs on these things, and they don't realize they do or not, so it's really important to know what you believe and to believe the right thing. You either believe Scripture is sufficient or you don't. You either believe it's inerrant and it's really the Word of God that gets everything it says right, or you don't. Yeah, exactly. Jacob? Well, I just, I'm just thinking about, because I've just been studying for a previous lesson, I might have mentioned this before, but... I've been studying a lot on spiritual deconstruction and and how the present generation, the millennial generation, Gen Z, is engaging with faith and engaging um, with tradition. And at, at the foundation of this, the, the more that I looked into this, I saw that kind of little thread that unravels it all is this lack of faith in the sufficiency of Scripture. And whenever that foundation had a crack in it, everything eventually became uh, started started coming unraveled. Mm -hmm. And um, so, it, it, it to me, it impacts like you guys are saying, all of faith, all of life. And there has to be some type of foundation that says, you know what, um, I might have questions, I might I might be seeking answers, but but I know that 
this is true. And I, and I can, I can build my faith on that. I can, I can, I can build my life on this truth and this, and this reality. And of course we believe that that sufficiency is, is found within scripture. And I think that you've seen, right. You've seen the ramifications of not believe the church, not believing in the sufficiency of scriptures by these variety, the, the, the uh, variety of heresies that are cropping up within Christianity and the lack, just, just the lack of, uh, scriptural based thinking and engaging with culture. So whenever the church does decide to engage with culture, how little of it is actually founded within scripture. So just take for a moment, uh, the, uh, social justice movement that, that, uh, really had a resurgence, um, with, uh, with George Floyd, the George Floyd incident back in 2020, uh, man, that seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but anyways, you know, I, I was seeing Christians obviously talk about these issues, but so many of them were making arguments that either had no reference to scripture at all, mm-hmm. uh, had no basis in scripture. And in fact, were often anti-scriptural. Um, and there were a, a massive amount of materials that were being recommended that Christians needed to read to understand this issue. And right. I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that we don't occasionally need outside voices and outside uh, information. Uh, but the problem was was that these resources were not only against Scripture and against Christ, but there was no attempt by some Christians to even try to engage these issues with Scripture. And to me, that's really where you begin to see the breakdown of: Does the church really believe? that the scripture is sufficient. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that, you know, when you think about why are we, uh, why do we need, why are we turning to, uh, you know, secular thinkers? Why, why are the, you know, foundational principles being established by uh, anything other than God and his prophets through the scriptures? And, the, you know, this, this is obviously there's this underlying idea that the scriptures are not enough. If we're going to navigate an issue as big as racism, we're going to need something like critical race theory. We're going to need, uh, you know, a book written by Robin D'Angelo. We're going to need something that's, uh, that's being peddled by a secular thinker that doesn't believe the Bible. But, you know, as I was thinking about this, this episode and preparing for it, one of the things I asked was which comes first the the idea that scripture is no longer inerrant or the idea that scripture is not sufficient and I think the answer is obviously the thing that comes first is inerrancy if you can attack inerrancy if if you can make the argument that the scriptures are not enough or are, are, are false, are containing historical errors, or have been changed throughout the centuries, then sufficiency, you know, that just follows suit. And, and the thing that we, I think we notice is the things that begin to shape where we pick and choose in the Bible is whatever the modes of thought are in the culture at that time. Mm-hmm. So the culture is attacking marriage, 
all of a sudden, well, you know, what we've been reading in the scriptures all along, that's probably not what God actually thinks. And so the thing that's shaping us and the thing that's forming us is really the culture. And uh, we, we lose all salt. We lose all light. Um, but it, but it goes back to that idea of no longer seeing the scriptures as inerrant. I think I would see it as the attacks that came started with inerrancy. Is this really the word of God? Can we trust it? And that's where you get a lot of like pop theology, the history channel and stuff like that. The books, books banned from the Bible, the Da Vinci code of their, the Catholic church got together and hid all of this information away from you. And so it makes you question the Bible. And I think that's on the elite outside the church level where they start. I think for Christians, it starts with sufficiency as we slide in the other direction. Because it makes sense that a, a leftward progressive march to attack scripture would start with inerrancy, but people sliding out of the church go from the sufficiency to inerrancy. Right. And so they, they have things like that. Well, the Bible didn't really give us enough for race and, and uh, how to handle that. The Bible didn't really address modern homosexual relationships. Uh, it, there was a, a book on that a few years ago where that was just the guy's whole point. Uh, mm the Bible didn't know what we know now. Like, okay, yeah. wow. And so that that's kind of getting to inerrancy, but it really was getting to sufficiency. Of it. it just didn't talk about what we have today. So we've got to make it up on the fly. And the more you do that, the more you kind of realize, I don't really need this stuff anyway because I've got all this stuff on top of it. And so now that I've got this that's better than the Bible, I can look at the Bible and be like, now I've got to justify my position that man's wisdom is better. And I can go, well, the Bible's full of errors anyway, probably. It, it, it's just old... Uh, what's the phrase that uh, the Reddit atheists like to use? The uh, Bronze Age goat herders, you know, telling tales around the campfire kind of thing. And so yeah. let's let's get into some of these manifestations. Let's start with inerrancy and insufficiency. We'll kind of separate them and attack each of them. Um, the naturalism thing you brought up in the intro, mm. there's no miracles. The Thomas Jefferson thing, cutting out the, the miraculous that Jesus did, because that's just too ridiculous. Oh, that's... Or you you see people, oh, a talking snake. Like, I, I couldn't believe that. My biggest problem with that, and I think something that every Christian has to come to grips with, is if a talking snake is, is too much for you to get your mind around, what do you do with a man who walks out of the grave? Yeah. And if you give up the talking snake, you kind of have already given up the man walking out of the grave on the third day after he called a shot. And if you gave that up, you don't have Christianity anymore. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, it really does come down to, um, those, those early chapters of the Bible, because I think those are the things that are most often attacked. Genesis, you mentioned Genesis one through three, I think last week, but you know, we expanded, we said, well, it really just kind of, it goes a little longer than that in Genesis, Genesis one through 11. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard Christians. I, I, I remember when I was um, studying in university and it was a Christian university. And while I was there, I was taking an astronomy class. And I remember one of my professors saying that, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, it's obvious that the, a six day creation is not biblical or excuse me, is, is not true. It, it may be what the Bible says, but that's not really what the Bible meant. And, he believed in theistic evolution. Now, I think a lot of Christians, they compartmentalize their faith so much that they never reason through what are the, what are the natural implications of holding to theistic evolution? How, how many different points of, of historic Christian theology are based in 
understanding the Genesis account in a literal sense? What, what are some of those and how would you guys approach that? Well, well, hopefully I don't cut out, by the way, my internet's kind of unstable right now. You guys have already cut out a couple of times for me, but I, I was just got done reading that book. I told you guys uh, that Wayne Grudem edited on uh, theistic evolution. And to be honest with you, before doing some more study on this over the the past little while, um, I didn't even realize, you know, how many of these key core doctrines are really called into question by questioning these first 11 chapters, which of course you guys know that it doesn't stop simply at questioning the first 11 chapters. I mean, you know, it, it, that's kind of talking about the unraveling, right? Like that's where it begins. But then it's like, well, you know, if you've got a problem with a talking snake, then you're going to have a problem with a talking donkey too with, with Balaam later on. So, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't stop at Genesis one through 11. Really it gets down to the foundational question of, do you believe that there is a God who transcends the natural order and can do as he pleases with that? Right. Yeah. Um, that's really the basis of the question, but you know, at the foundation of some, really, I think the biggest issue, doctrinal issue that it calls into question is the historical Adam, right? I mean, there's, there's other problems with questioning Genesis one through 11, but I, to me, that's the central issue, right? Because yeah. if there, if there is not a historical Adam and a historical Eve that was specially created by God, that really calls into question everything. I mean, the entire gospel, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see this when you look at Romans five and, and, uh, moving forward within Romans, as, as Paul talks about how all, uh, that, that Christ has redeemed the seed of Adam, right? There's a parallel between the redemptive, uh, gift of Christ and the transgression of Adam. And therefore, you know, if you're not of Adam's seed, then you have no hope of salvation because it is only Adam's seed that Christ redeems. Right. And uh, Jesus is shown to be the new Adam of God's new creation. And so, you know, there's a host of the, 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 uh, uh, this is connected to Adam and Eve as well, but our doctrine of marriage, right? Yeah. We've already mentioned that Matthew chapter well, 19. Can, can, I, can I go off of that yeah, for yeah. Just one second before we go on to marriage? Cause there, I think there's another thing that needs to be said about specifically just about um, the, the, embrace of um theistic evolution the denial of the original adam and eve as the first two human beings on the earth you know if we if we go with what darwin is saying and just accept what's being put forward in these institutions what's the chief problem that the universe has uh or that the world has well i mean from a theological sense we would say sin but what is the rest of the world? What, what does everybody else say is our biggest problem as human beings? Death, right? Uh, and and we, we saw during COVID the extent of how scared we are of this and how much we want to control this. And, and we saw that we have no control over it. There's so many factors. Uh, we can develop a vaccine. We can do our best. And it it's ultimately impotent. Our, our best efforts are impotent to solve the problem we would say is the biggest. Now, if we go back to the beginning, what does God say when he's finished making the world, when he's finished with his six days of creation on seventh day, he sits back and he looks on all of it. What's he think of it? It's good, right? I mean, it's very good. And the reason that it was very good is because it 
it it was teeming with life and it was fruitful and it was built to last and there was paradise and all that. The scriptures say the chief problem that we face, which is death, was something that came from sin. That is the answer for it. And the theistic evolutionary perspective is is built on, you know, um, th- their main, if you can call it evidence, which I understand there's not really, there's no macro evidence, but th- they're built on a fossil record, right? That's, that's what they're arguing. They're saying death has been here from the beginning. Things have been dying from the very beginning. And if things have been dying before man ever sinned, then man's sin is not really the reason for uh, death and all that we're experiencing. Disease, pain, yeah, all of it. And yeah. as it comes to inerrancy, I, uh, you guys kind of hinted at this a minute ago, the part that's so frustrating about this is it's it's always the fashionable things that we question. The Bible's teachings on marriage, the Bible's teaching on gender roles, the Bible's teaching on scientific things like creation versus evolution. And... That's kind of the argument that a lot of people and, and a lot of Christians come at it with is, oh, come on, you don't you don't really believe that, do you? You don't really actually think creation in six days, the earth is only thousands of years old rather than millions of years. You don't actually think whatever else, you know, insert unpopular doctrine, unpopular miracle thing that runs against the, the current thing. Number one, fashionable, you know, popularity isn't the question. We shouldn't ever start there. But number two, the thing that's so ridiculous about this and so frustrating is you've got Christians begging for the world's approval, and then you start looking at the scientific world, and stuff is coming out all the time of like, man, Darwinism was such a fraud. It, it was such a joke. Like, we screwed this up so bad. And it, it, it's unraveling like crazy. And there was a, a big article that went around just like a month ago of, we've got to rethink this whole thing because it's not any good. It doesn't work. Like it made yeah. sense in the 1850s, but now it now that we know all of this extra stuff, it just doesn't fit anymore. And so all of these Christians for the last 170 years that have run to that side of things because they want to be cool, they want to be accepted by the world, they don't want to look like they don't want to look stupid to the world. Now they're on the wrong side of something. Like you should have just stayed here the whole time. And you see these archaeological they... things about like you know, they're discovering that mankind, you know, every human that lives today goes back to two common ancestors. Like, you don't say. We knew that. Yeah. I mean, and and they, so they, they, they don't want to appear stupid to scientists who say that a man is a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Like, whose approval are you seeking in this? But when you start <laughs> yeah, well, questioning inerrancy, that's the side you end up on. Yeah, they're put. I mean, they're starting to push back against that. I listened to a lecture the other day and, and I this what I don't I don't even know when the lecture actually happened, but it, it was within the 2000s, but it was by Eric Strahan. And he was talking about this tension in evangelicalism between having an understand or being biblically accurate and also being socially relevant and having a message that, that has both of those things. And I think that what we've let happen is we've strayed. We've, we've let the culture be the thing that dictates what our message is rather than beginning with the scriptures and showing how the scriptures are relevant for all of life. But Jack, I think, I mean, you said this at the start, it goes back to the first temptation ever. Did God actually say this? You, you, you start questioning that. And 
anything that the culture wants. That's the that's the direction your your message is going to go. Well, Ed, you look at transgenderism, something like that, that that's so hot right now. The real implication of that is God messed up. God, you know, when Christians accept the framing of this thing, it's God messed up. So wow. within an er- with the the view on inerrancy, we're starting off with God is never wrong. My interpretation of him can be wrong sometimes. And so I'm not saying that my reading of the Bible is infallible, but the Bible is infallible. It's not wrong. It's not full of contradictions. It's not outdated. It's not Bronze Age goat herder tales that, that don't get anything right. The Bible's right. And so if we start with that assumption, yeah. again, history proves us right. And you look at, I mean, how many times archaeology has done that, where the Bible tells us about a certain people or a certain person, and archaeologists just laugh it off. Oh, that you know, the Bible making up stories. And then they find out, oh, okay, those were real people. That The Bible was right about that. It got that detail right. It, the track record is so entrenched at this point. It's so ridiculous to question but right. we, if for our own purposes, need to come at the Bible with that that question of, all right, what did God get God get wrong so that I can impose my own meaning over it? And and if the ultimate end of inerrancy questioning is putting man over God. Our truth well, is is over God's truth. Well, yeah. and I and I think that really, what's important to note is there's there's been through the years attempts to kind of codify a different interpretation of inerrancy, right? I'm sure you guys have seen these discussions whenever mm-hmm. something comes up about inerrancy. It's like, well, what do you mean by inerrancy, right? Yeah. Um, and that discussion of trying to, and I think you mentioned that in the beginning, Daniel, of, well, it contains the word of God. Yeah. So this whole attempt to hang on to some semblance because they understand that if they are going to maintain their faith, if, if they're going to uphold Christianity, they have to give some authority to scripture, right? Because there's no, you you have no Christianity without the text. The, there is no faith without the text. And so they realize they have to hold on to that uh, and and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you know maybe these guys are seeing things that that some of them are seeing things that they're being challenged by, and they still want to hold on to inerrancy. But they're also seeing other things that they're studying that is challenging that. But at the end of the day, the way I see it is, and the more I study it, it's kind of an either or situation. Because if you reject the total inerrancy of Scripture, if you reject that, then the next question is, okay, so which ones are true and which yeah. ones are false right and how yeah. do you determine that and that goes back to the illustration exactly. that you used there at the beginning of well if this is of the spirit of christ right well how do i know which passages tell me what is truly the spirit of christ and it all goes back to well now really we have crafted this self-made religion right that has some semblance of connection to Christianity. And that is why it's so insidious and so dangerous because I can convince myself that I have crafted the true faith when in fact it's, it's heresy. And it, 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 and so it's kind of an either or thing, this inerrancy discussion. You're right because it does, it immediately becomes arbitrary, which, which areas are 
am I going to deem true and which areas am I going to deem false? And again, what we've, we've already mentioned a couple times in this is the areas that are generally deemed true are the areas that the culture has no problem with. So it's convenient. Changes. Yeah. I mean, it is, <laughs> it changes. If anytime I see somebody saying, I'm going to go off and restudy the, the issue of homosexuality, you know, there needs to be there need to be some scriptures and some general principles and some ideas that are just like we we have them in we have them locked tight because the Lord has made them so obvious so apparent that there cannot be any question of it and I think that's the problem is there's no there's very little conviction on any of these things it's a lack of conviction and the, and then there's you know there is movement in whichever way the culture wants to go but you know, one thing, Jacob, as you talk about it being arbitrary and, you know, coming down to how do I decide what's good and what's true versus what's, you know, was, was put in there by a, um, you know, by a, an editor way after the fact or the coming out of that, that movement, uh, when I was reading about kind of the, the root of theological liberalism and everything that came from it. There was this, this movement called the quest for the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the early 1900s. And a bunch of these scholars, biblical scholars, decided we're going to find who the historical Jesus really was. Now, they're, they're, are, they're operating under this idea. Their, their presupposition is universe is closed. There is no God has not really um, put his finger into the mix to reorder it. So miracles are out. Well, they said, well, so we're just going to take away those things. And they, and they went individually to their theological studies. And then they emerged from their studies a couple years later and they compared notes. And one of the things that's interesting, I, I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said that they found that the only consensus among them was that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that he was uh, crucified by Pontius Pilate. That's it. So the best thinkers, the brightest minds, with all of their studies, using a scientific approach to their studies, there was zero consensus. And I think that led to, you know, people saying things like, well, them making a jump from, well, I guess we'll never really know exactly what the scriptures are, but we're going to say they're true because we can see some value in them. And it's a really mystical thing. We jumped to this realm of mysticism and just detached it from historical space and time. And um, it's it, it just but, but he, water. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. That that foundation of, well, we're going to we're even though we don't really believe this is true or have a any 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 confidence that this is true we're going to hold on to it because it benefits us socially or practically um that does not hold water for very long because eventually you're going to confront scriptures that are are repugnant to you right i mean just that that you can't stand that that have no practical value and and are quite difficult to swallow right and we've talked about some yeah. of those you know the the extermination oh, yeah. of the canaanites you know god uh, and his, his inflicting his wrath at various times within history. So, you know, and, and I remember I was I was um, watching the uh, 
spiritual deconstruction story of Rhett and Link. And, and I, and I, and I, Rhett at one point within there said something along those lines of like, you know, he began to realize that at first he thought, well, I'll just not believe the Old Testament. And, and then, uh, but I'll hold on to Jesus. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I'm not, I can't believe in this Old Testament God and all of these things that happened with the Israelites and coming out of Egypt and the creation account, but I'll, I'm not going to question Jesus. But then he began to realize that he had no understanding of Christ apart from the Old Testament. Yeah, so no, he couldn't yeah. he couldn't just hold these things separately. And that eventually led to him to rejecting Christ and God ultimately, because he even yeah. says, he says, if I don't have to believe in a God that did this, this, and this, you know, uh, exterminated the Canaanites, did this, you know, uh, is going to condemn people to hell if they don't believe him. If I don't have to believe in a God like that, then why would I want to? Yeah. Exactly. And everyone's right. always cool with Jesus, right? Because he's he's so nice. He's so, all the things that we cast him as, but I mean, you got to go back to the liar, lunatic, or Lord thing. Right. He's not a good teacher. It doesn't work that way. The The claims that he puts out, the promises of judgment, all of everything he brings, but that, that brings us to one other side of it. I, we've talked about the Genesis 1 through 11 one. The other big attack on inerrancy is the idea that Jesus is a contradiction to other parts of the Bible. Yeah, and that Jesus good. represents a departure from the Old Testament, but a really popular one, even among people that might be considered more socially acceptable, not like wild out there progressive. I I would consider some of them that, but a lot of Christians in our pews maybe read like Beth Moore or something like that, who put Jesus and Paul against each other. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's between the two, I'm going to go with Jesus, as if yeah. like you have to choose one or the other. And mm -hmm. so that's yeah. you don't think of that as an attack on inerrancy, but it is because it's saying. The Bible contradicted itself, and you've got to pick and choose which one you're going to go with, making, again, you the ultimate arbiter. Jesus uh, and Paul yeah. didn't disagree with each other, and, and people have to understand that, or else the Bible starts, once again, unraveling. Listen, well, the earliest, the, our earliest understandings of Jesus do not come from the Gospels. Right. They come from Paul. The earliest, write, the earliest writings that we have about who Jesus is and his nature uh -huh. um, are, are found within Philippians. Um, yep. are found within first Corinthians. Right. These but that's not the first one you come to in your new Testament. So it can't, <laughs> right. can't right. most people don't realize that they're like, Oh, well, Paul and Jesus disagree. Okay. But I, obviously I don't believe that they disagree, but Paul, the stuff you're reading from Paul actually came before the things that you're reading about Jesus in the gospel. The other thing well, about actually, that is think about if if Jesus is Lord and King and everything he went through, the cross and the grave, and he rose up and King of kings and Lord of lords, and all authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth, and within 20 years, he let this Yahoo Pharisee come in and destroy everything he was trying to set up and totally right. lead all of his disciples the wrong direction. Jesus was right. a massive failure. I don't think right. people realize what they're casting Jesus as when they start right. those attacks on Paul, when they start subtly saying that they don't agree with each other. It's like, man, Jesus got totally dunked on then. And I mean, uh, that's that's despicable. I hate that idea. Yeah, you do away with Paul and you're doing away with a lot more than you than you think that you are. Again, we try we categorize it. But I was sometime back, um, and this is this has been a few years, but I was sitting in the airport and I had my Bible open. And this man that was sitting nearby came over and he said, I saw that you had a, a Bible, and you could tell, you could just tell by the way this guy was coming over that he yeah. had. Oh, yeah. You can and totally like, tell. Oh, please. <laughs> 
Lord, give me the patience that I need. Because <laughs> you can just tell by the way that he walked over by his opening line. Is that a Bible you got there? And he said his first words after that were, now I got a real bone to pick with the Apostle Paul. And, you know, this is kind of my first introduction to this. I didn't realize that this was like a thing to, to kind of undo Paul. Because, but anyways, I just asked him, I said, well, you know, after he, he ranted for a while, he said, Jesus presented this beautiful, simple message that everybody could understand. And Paul just came along and convoluted the whole thing. That was his, that was his point. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you, um, do you believe, or are, are you a fan of Peter? What do you think of Peter? He said, oh, Peter, Peter's great. I said, well, Peter called Paul, his beloved brother. Now, how about Luke? Oh, no, I got no problem with Luke. Well, Luke is the one that showed how Paul was converted by Jesus himself, how he was commissioned to his ministry by Jesus himself. So you start to throw out one of these, then you're immediately dismissing claims from Peter. You start dismissing claims from Luke. And again, it starts to unravel. And I think these seeds of doubt are what you talk about deconstructionism. I had a buddy in college. It went the same way. He started by being ashamed of the God of the Old Testament, started by, then he moved to saying that, the you know, you read about genocide, you read about the Lord saying you're going to take Canaan and you're going to destroy men, women, children, and, and everybody there. He said, I, you know, I realized that this is just war rhetoric. It's not really what actually happened. So he, he took away the historicity of it. And now it's just, it's just rhetoric. Well, then he eventually got rid of those books. And then, you know, as time goes on, just recently, I saw him post, he said, I don't even, I don't identify as Christian anymore because Christian has bad connotation when you say it. So I just don't even identify. So it, it ends up ultimately, you stay on the path long enough that the scriptures are, are erroneous and insufficient. You will eventually, if you live long enough and given enough time, you're going to deny the faith and, uh, you know, well, you know, and, and, and the thing is, is like, I was just saying, talking, preaching about this on Sunday, like the heresies that we deal with today are just repackaged material, right? It's just, it's just stuff that has been repackaged and reformed and handed down to new generations. And, and because one of the things that I've noticed in my, as I've preached through first John is, and, you know, when you go through first Corinthians and second Corinthians as well, is that the apostles are already having to assert and to defend their apostolic authority very early on. Right. Because one of the ways that people would gain power in these schismatic groups was by calling into question the apostolic tradition and the apostolic authority because they knew that they could not gain power if they continued in that in that strain, right? So you get to First John chapter four, verses uh, five and six, and uh, on Sunday we talked about okay, how do you know if someone's a false teacher? And we looked at the three tests of First um, uh, John, or there's more than that. There's actually a fourth one we're going to talk about this Sunday. But there's the conduct test, you know, whether or not they're living righteously or unrighteously, whether they're supporting immoral activity. Um, there's the confessional test, what they confess and believe about Christ. But then there's what I called the creedal test. Are they upholding apostolic authority and apostolic tradition? Because because John says there, whoever is of God listens to us. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the idea is 
if people reject apostolic authority, they are not of God. And you see that happening in more and more circles where people are placing these cultural interpretations on Paul's uh, belief in gender roles, for example. And what do they do? They, they, you know, call Paul a victim of his times. You know, he's a male chauvinist that was impacted by rabbinical tradition and things of that nature. What's the purpose of all that? The purpose is to undermine the apostolic authority of Paul so that they can unhitch Christianity of the baggage of some of the patriarchal teachings of the early church. And so what are they doing there? They're, they're undermining the scripture. And once you do that again, and I've said this before and I, and I, and I just have seen it so often that, that it just seems very true to me. Whenever you undermine one doctrine, it's a domino effect, and, and especially when it comes to some of these key foundational doctrine, mm-hmm. doctrines that are reflected in both special and natural revelation. So, for example, gender roles. What do you see happening at these churches that take an aggressive stance against the traditional normative gender roles that we see uh, within Scripture? Within a generation, most of the time, that church is accepting homosexual practice, homosexual activity, and instead and instilling and installing um, homosexual leaders Um, because, and what happened the generation before there was a radical egalitarianism that was promoted within that, that was based upon this rejection of apostolic authority and the sufficiency of scripture. Now I realize sometimes we have to be mindful of the slippery slope argument, but sometimes it's true. And and when you see it happening over and over again, the reason is because when you undermine the foundations of natural revelation and special revelation as seen within these core doctrines, there's no stopping point, right? There's really no stopping point. That's yeah. a great insight about First John, and I think you guys have probably seen exactly what I've seen about some of these deconstructing people, or maybe not even deconstructing, deconstructing, but questioning, like you're saying, these churches, well, well, maybe not about that. Well, maybe we can loosen up on that, or as Daniel, you brought up, we can restudy this. And what you end up doing is if that first time that you say, well, actually, God was wrong about this. The world has a line of people standing there ready to tell you, guess what else he was wrong about? Let me show you this other thing. You know what? He was real mean to homosexuality. Man, that stuff about divorce, that's just really hard. And it hurts people when you teach that. And, uh, you know, egalitarian, the the gender roles. And boy, Paul said that. Jesus didn't. Uh, The thing, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. It's like, well, yeah, he did, number one in his own time on earth, but also through the rest of the scripture. And, and so when you just get in this habit and man, I, there's this one guy, uh, he was a preacher. I, I think I was in a preacher's group with him. And I think that was the first domino to fall was uh, female leadership in the church. And it was almost, it, it gave him this, like it invigorated him, excited him. And man, this guy like started looking for what's the next thing I can, what's the next, you know, tree I can, I can uproot, what's the next doctrine I can go after, what's the next, and it got down to where he's essentially a universalist, everyone is saved, God is not going to punish or judge anybody, uh, the Bible is not actually accurate, you know, it's got some good things, it's like, well, you got nothing left, and, and right. so it, not everyone goes that far. The other thing I want to talk about, because there's a lot of Christians, you know, people listening to this probably going, I don't question Paul, I don't question Genesis 1 through 11, I don't have a, a problem with inerrancy, I've written on this before. I really think that topical preaching creates a lot, uh, solely topical preaching. There's a place for it. But the the proof texting, jumping all over the Bible, 
trains yes. Christians to believe in Bible contradictions. And you see yeah. this in the way they argue, especially arguments online or whatever. I just had one the other day where I was talking about, you know, fearing God. And it's a good thing. Fear God and keep his commandments, the whole end of man. And, uh, you know, just all of the, the, the verses we have about that. Jesus, fear him who is able to, to cast body and soul into hell. And, well, perfect oh, I love. I this interaction, by the way. <laughs> the other person comes back, perfect love casts out fear. And so I, I don't fear God. I just love God. It doesn't contradict itself. That doesn't mean that for, that Ecclesiastes doesn't count anymore. It means you've right. got to figure out how these things fit together. Yes, perfect love does cast out fear. We're going to know that perfect love when we're like him, First John 3. You get your context there. Uh, we're not at a place where we are perfectly safe from falling. And so there is a fear that keeps us from going to the wrong side of the road. And so that's one example. But how many times do you have a discussion with a Christian? You say, well, here's this verse that this is what I'm going off of. And they say, well, this verse says something different. Like, or, you know, baptism and, and, uh, and faith. Well, 1 Peter 3.21 says baptism now saves you. Well, Ephesians 2 says you're saved by grace through faith. Like, So you're, you're telling me the Bible contradicts itself? But man, yeah, how many times do you see Christians talking that way? And it's like, do we believe the Bible is inerrant and non-contradictory or not? But, the, but, but you brought it, I mean, you hit it right on the head. Where does this originate? I mean, it starts in... The pulpit, and I think you know earlier, Jack, when I was talking about what start, what comes first, is it is it inerrancy or the sufficiency of Scripture that falls first? And I think ultimately it's inerrancy. Now you're right about the people on the street, you know, just your your regular pew sitting Christian, they may not be aware that that's what it is, but probably from the top down, from the pulpit, from that leadership position, the person that went to seminary, the person that studied, they've begun to question the inerrancy of scripture and in it shows in their preaching. So, yeah, it, it does. I, in John yeah. MacArthur's book on preaching, one of the things that he says is if we're going to, to uh, accept inerrancy, and if we're going to say, we believe that the word of God is the perfect infallible word of God does not contain errors. It's historically true. It was, you know, uh, in a verbal plenary way passed from the Holy spirit through the hands of the apostles who put it on parchment. And then it was accurately copied through the ages. If we accept that as true, then expository preaching should be the natural fruit of it. You should be able to say, we're going to go verse by verse because we don't want to miss anything. Um, in, um, while I was reading Walter Kaiser's, um, uh, book on, uh, toward an exegetical theology, and of course, Walter Kaiser is, is one of the few in like high scholarly circles that would hold to the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture. And one of the things that he said is, he, he said, should the ministry of the pulpit fail, one might just as well conclude that all the supporting ministries of Christian education, counseling, community involvement, yes, even missionary and society outreach, will likewise soon dwindle, if not collapse. And, you know, it goes back to what are you listening to? Who's preaching and what are they saying? And if it's, if it's just topical, you are probably missing a ton of stuff because the pre you guys know it. The preacher is not that creative in terms of my topic from one week to the next. If I'm going to preach topically, it's just going to be what do I want to preach this week? That's that's a very small window. It's a very small library. Yeah. Of <laughs> I, I think that there needs to be a uh, a firm foundation of exegetical 
preaching that undergirds any topical preaching. Yeah. It's like we talked about, there there, there are certain topics that it's very difficult to find a single text that might engage with a particular like topic that maybe the, the church needs to hear, or you might have to go to a couple of places. Like, you know, Paul preaches pretty topically in the book of Acts, for example, a lot of his preaching is pretty topical, but what is Paul's undergirding theology? What is his undergirding foundation is this expansive view of how God is working within the world through Christ and how that fits into this overarching narrative, this structure by which he sees it. And I think that's probably the issue with some of the topical preaching that's done is how it's done to where it's kind of like what Jack was talking about is this, you know, um, um, compartments, you know, where they're, they're, they're constantly at conflict with each other and there is no cohesive whole because sometimes the men, and I'm guilty of this, right? Sometimes the minister himself does not see how it all fits together mm-hmm. within the scope of the gospel and within the entirety of Revelation. And the only way that you can do that is if you're consistently preaching um, from the text and allowing it to form what you're saying. And, and, and also the emphasis, we're not going to get on preaching right now, but also the emphasis that we place on certain doctrines within the church is determined better when we preach exegetically, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, without context, con- uh, sorry, without context, no, go ahead. you can make a verse say whatever you want it to. I think mm-hmm. the the prime, the greatest example of this, of course, is Philippians 4.13. I, I can do all things through Christ. And you see how many misuses of that, you know, whether it's it's going through school or athletes using Philippians. Oh, man, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not what that means. And And so you think about how many Bible verses there are that you can do that with. If you don't give context and that's what leads to what I call these scripture wars of I'm trying to prove something. And I say, well, this verse says this. Well, I've got this verse over here that said, again, you're, you're telling me the Bible contradicts itself. You can't shoot a Bible verse mm-hmm. against another Bible verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to say, what does this one mean? What was it being given in context for? What is it it's saying? And so this inerrancy, I think it's a very subtle way in which Christians or we're going to talk about this. We're going to have a whole episode on this. How many Christians do that to the Old Testament? That's the mm-hmm. Old Testament. That's, you know, that, that doesn't apply anymore. That's the old law. We're not under that anymore. And so there's there's just a million ways in which you can diminish the the power, the pop, the the influence of a Bible verse um, yeah. by, by trying to shoot it down, by trumping it with another Bible verse, whatever it is that you're trying to do. And yeah. that's a really dangerous road to walk because, again, we're making ourselves that final arbiter. And let's, not only let's, let's let's talk. I know we, we could probably go down this road for a long time. And Jacob, if you have a quick comment, I, I wanted to transition to um, some specific aspects of how we question the sufficiency of Scripture. And, I, I was going to say we're, we're 50 uh, minutes in and we haven't gotten to sufficiency yet. Do we need to push that to another episode? <laughs> I don't want to well, do it maybe, in five minutes. Maybe, yeah, true. We're already 50 minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> time does yeah, fly. Was, uh, would you guys be good with uh, rolling sufficiency into our next episode? Yeah, let's let's do that, Jacob. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I like it, it's important. No, uh, I was just I, saying. I, the, the, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> the zoo, the awkward zoom exactly uh, uh, standoff, right? Mm. Uh, so, um, but I I do think that like the reason that these topics matter and the reason that I'm okay with um. By the way, my computer is going insane right now. It keeps trying to open all of these apps. Something's taking over my computer. Um, but right. uh, what? One of the one of the reasons that it impacts us is because there's a very practical impact to all this. And it's not just it's not just theological. 
right? Like sometimes these things like inerrancy and uh, sufficiency of scripture get thrown up to, oh, that's just, that's just theology. And it's like, listen, what you believe about life and what you believe about God and whether or not this, what this book says is true impacts everything, not just your eternal destiny, but how you live right now. Right. Like from a very young age, I was taught that I'm so thankful that I, that I was taught this, but I was taught it from a very young age that the Bible is is all that we need for life and godliness before before the Lord. Yeah. That has shaped my life immensely. It is it has impacted my marriage. It has impacted how I interact with my kids. It has impacted all of the struggles and trials that we've gone through. It it, it influences everything. Yeah, and so yeah. you 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 can't just throw this off and say, well, that's just theology. You know, do you realize if we take away inerrancy of scripture, we're just dangling. We don't have anything. We, I'm like, it is all, I mean, you go into the book of judges, everyone does what's right in their own eyes, because if, if there's not a final authority, then relativism reigns, right? We all get to make our own rule. We all get to say, this is what I want. This is what I think is best. So I'm going to do it. That gets really ugly. Human history has shown us that gets really ugly. And so if there's not one supreme authority over everything else, uh, one one final word on what's right and what's wrong. Uh, I don't want to live in that world. Like, I mean, that's... And right. I, I know this is where the atheists come in and say, your religion is a crutch. Like, okay, but what are you guys going off of? And they don't have answers for that. There are no answers. That if the Bible is not inerrant, nobody can say anything is right or wrong. Nobody can make any truth claims. Nobody... Like I said, we are just dangling with nothing to stand on. It is a, a terrifying thought of if... And so many Christians... I don't think have processed this that far, but I, I think you're exactly right, Jacob. This affects life. This is not academic, heady, nerdy stuff. Every single day, your life revolves around whether you believe this doctrine or not. One of the things that I think that you're going to see on the street, like if we're thinking about, you know, I think we've spoken generally about the way not viewing the scriptures as an errant would, would be borne out. But One of the specifics that I've seen is, you know, and I think it's, it's a reasonable question to ask. It's one that I think a lot of people have. It concerns just the accurate, you know, the accuracy of the transmission of the scriptures. People would say, well, you know, I do believe that Jesus lived and I believe Paul lived and Peter lived and Moses lived. And, um, but I don't, I don't think that there's any way it could have been transmitted accurately through the ages. And so their, their view on, you know, scripture having errors within it, they would say it comes down to scribal errors. It comes down to just human error. It comes down to people copying the scriptures through the centuries. And I think one of the things that people need to understand is that we have a huge, massive manuscript base that goes from the very early centuries. And this is just for the New Testament. It goes from the very early centuries all the way through uh, the Byzantine Um, middle ages period. And the amazing thing in, you know, textual criticism and and people that just that study uh, those manuscripts, it is that, look, you might have a whole family of manuscripts that has one subtle difference between this family over here. But when you take all of the manuscripts and you lay them over one another, you have an overwhelmingly clear and obvious picture of what was there. And the earlier that we get back to the time of the original writings, 
we still see, I mean, I've got a, a fragment over in my office is a, it's just a copy of the John Ryan, John Ryland's P 52 fragment, but this is probably early second century. It's a quotation from the book of John early second century. John wrote not long before this at all. And the words on it are the same. That's in my new Testament Bible today, today, you, you know, for a long time, the King James Bible was based off of uh, mostly those uh, Byzantine texts and kind of those later um, texts that was one family. Um, you know, when we found, when scholarship has dug up more and more and unearthed more and more, and we're just finding, look, these guys did an amazing job at transmitting this text to us. Same thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, how many, how many in biblical scholarship said there's no way that the Old Testament was accurately transmitted? It's, it's changed. It's not, well, it's, not, it's not what it originally was, but when we found the, it was back in the fifties that we, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. um, in, in Qumran in the caves, look, they start looking through these and they're like, well, uh, I mean, these, these date back to before the time of Jesus. And well, these are very, 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 very close to what we have already in our old testament scripture so they were wrong and the assumption is is always to find some reason to reject it but really we can be very we can be very confident that what that what we have was accurately transmitted uh through the ages i think that's important i mean don't you think it that is that's yeah and and i think some of this comes back to the resurrection we we, we have to kind of tie this up but some of this also comes back to like if Jesus is who he said he was, and, and if we if you genuinely believe that he is the son of God, that he was the resurrected son of God, then you have to believe in the sufficiency of scriptures because how he dictated scriptures was that it is the word of God, right? It is it is the word of God to hu- humanity. Yeah. And, and I think that the scriptures have power in and of themselves to produce faith. And, you know, obviously we, we believe that. I think of John 7, 17, you know, whoever... Uh, wills to do the will of the Father, he will know uh, whether the doctrine I'm saying is true, right? So I, I think of like, um, there was this guy I knew who, uh, he he used to work at a golf course, and he told me the story about his coworker would always give him a hard time of like, I can't believe you believe in that book, you know, blah, blah. And he would just, he would just rail on him for believing in the Bible, you know, and believing that it was the word of God. And and, uh, and at the end of every conversation, he would go back and forth with him. And he said, well, he said, you can believe that. But one day, this book is going to judge you. Mm-hmm. And he would say that at the end of every conversation, even though he knew that like it wasn't convincing him, his arguments. He, he wanted his convictions about the text to be a witness against this man's sin and just to say, listen, you had someone for 40 days or whatever that told you this word is going to judge you. And I think that that's ultimately what comes, this comes down to is like, if you believe in Christ, if you believe in the scriptures, one of the messages is you're going to be judged by what's in this book. Yeah. Uh, And that's really, I mean, that's serious stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. We, we have to, I think that's the natural outgrowth. If, if the Bible is the inerrant word of God, then Christians are going to be studying it a lot more seriously than they are. We're going to, we're going to be actively spending time as a family unit, mom, dad, kids, everybody in sort of a patriarchal um, way, establishing the reign of Christ 
within our little family, building a culture around Christ within our family. And it's going to be built on the scriptures. And, you know, we're going to put a lot more stock in that than reading, like you mentioned earlier, a, a Beth more devotional or some little, some little silly book that was uh, authored to be really easy and, and take very little energy from you. And we're going to say, if this is the word of the Lord, that's going to judge me. I'm going to, I'm going to get serious about studying it. I can find a passion to study it, knowing that it is the inerrant perfect authority of God. Not only that, but uh, I mean, you you just, if you got a Bible nearby, grab it, take a look at it. It's not that big. I mean, uh, of you're talking about the thousands of years of human existence and the God, the creator of the universe has spoken to us. And this is it. This is what we have. Point. Like, how valuable is that? How, uh, like, every word of it, we need to be breathing, living, uh, taking it seriously. Because as you're getting at, if it's if it's not, if it's full of errors, if it's just another book, grab that one. Grab Confucius. Grab the Book of Mormon. Grab the Koran. Grab whatever book you want to read, uh, mm-hmm. and and go through it and and take the things you like out of it. Yeah. If it is inerrant, it stands above every other book. It judges every other book. It judges the truth of everything we believe. You really got to treat it like it's that valuable, like it matters that much. And so we did intend to get to uh, sufficiency along with this as well, because it's the other side of the coin. Um, I I think what we'll get to next week is I've said a couple times, inerrancy is placing ourselves over the Bible, that we are the authority, that uh, we get to decide what's right and what's wrong, and we get to tell God what counts and what doesn't. Sufficiency is really placing ourselves alongside the Bible. Hey, the Bible's great. We love the Bible. It's full of good stuff. But we need this stuff on top of it. We need this this extra stuff to go along with it because the Bible just didn't give us what we need. And so we'll we'll fill in the gaps that the Bible left for us. Uh, that is incredibly popular today. Has a lot of applications, uh, a lot of very specific ways in which that's coming out in very Bible-believing, church-going people um, really take that stuff in. And so uh, I, I'm glad we're going to do it. It's due diligence because uh, that, that's a serious one as well. We're going to push the rest of this discussion into next week's episode on sufficiency. If Unless you guys have uh, anything else to add, I think we'll wrap this week on Who Let the Dogma Out. Mm-hmm.